ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Nick Kleeman is an environmental scientist and he's one of Australia's leading lizard experts. Although Nick doesn't much like the term expert and he never thought he'd be that person anyway. Nick grew up in a place where university wasn't really presented as an option for him. And so he did what most young men from his neighbourhood did. He became a tradie. And it wasn't until Nick was in his mid-twenties that he plucked up the nerve to go to university and to mingle with what he thought was the intellectual elite. But because the subject was environmental science, Nick's love of the wilderness and animals just propelled him through the course and into a completely different life that's taken him to the Andes Mountains and the desert sands of the Silk Roads. Now Nick is working for Zoos Victoria, leading fighting extinction programs on various lizards and snakes and a giant frog that lives almost entirely underground. Hello, Nick. Hello, Richard. When I go on a bushwalk, I'll see things like birds. If I'm lucky, I'll see the odd marsupial. How many lizards are there likely to be hidden in the landscape that I just can't see? Well, many, many. Australia is known as the land of the lizards. And for people who are into these things, we're, we're, we're the envy of much of the world. And so, of course, depending on where you are and the time of year, so if you're, if you're in Victoria uh, in winter, you're not going to see much in terms of lizards. But uh, at other times of the year, you will see and you will hear them. And, and there'll be many, many more that you don't see They're pretty abundant in most ecosystems in Australia and obviously they have some pretty important roles to play there. And in terms of biomass, in terms of the collective, literally the collective weight of animals, lizards are often a very significant component of those ecosystems. So, you know, they, they then have a key roles in food webs and energy cycling and that kind of thing. You say Australia is seen as the land of lizards. That's something we ought to put on tourist marketing, I think, just quietly. But um, the land of lizards, why, why is that? It's because we have a great amount of diversity. So we have, you know, five families of lizards and they, they range in size from little tiny things that barely crack about three or four centimetres in total length right up to the big goannas that people are kind of familiar with, uh, you know, in eastern Victoria and northern Victoria, we have things like the lace monitor or tree goanna, and in central Australia, there's the biggest of all, the parenti. But in between those size extremes, a lot of the lizards we've got are iconic and they're known around the world. So the frilled neck lizard would probably be the best example, and there'd be few people in the world who, who don't know what that animal is. They may not know its name, but they they will associate it with Australia. And then there's things like the thorny devil. We've got some stunning geckos and they fill all manner of ecological niches from, you know, from the top order predators in the big goannas, you know, right down to tiny little insectivores. And if you go overseas, if you go to the US, if you go to Europe, in the pet shops, you will see Aussie lizards for sale, uh, bearded dragons, stumpy tail lizards, that kind of thing. And so given Australia's landmass is much of it's arid or semi-arid, and we know that in those areas around the world, there are high lizard density. So it's, it's that, it's the sheer number, but it's also the fact that we've got some really cool lizards. They've got amazing behaviours, great colours. I mean, I have colleagues in other countries who are who are herpetologists like me and some friends I've worked with, uh, some Russians in particular, have just said that this is their dream to get to Australia to experience that. You're a man who's filled with the joy of lizards. What is the joy of lizards for you? What's the pleasure of them for you, Nick? 
their behaviour fascinates me and their behaviour is far, far more complex than most people realise, I think. But there's also a remarkable beauty to them. Often when you find them, they're, they're almost too perfect. They're smooth and their patterns are incredible. And, and you can see how the patterns on some of these animals uh, inspire Indigenous art and that kind of thing. And there's an element to, to lizards and to working on lizards professionally that we are hands-on when so many of my colleagues that work on you know, mammals and birds, for example, are, are not. The research on those warm-blooded endothermic birds and mammals, it's often done using technology these days. We have sound recorders and we have cameras that are, that are automatically triggered by a passing animal, and that's what's used a lot in studying and in monitoring birds and mammals. But for the lizards, it still requires a lot of handling. You've got to catch the animal, sometimes to identify it, that you, know, you need to look at individual scales. One of the real joys for me is that I still have that literally hands-on element to the role I play, and you know that's about as connected as you can be to, to wildlife. Now, one of the things you specialise in are water dragons. Now, I used to live near the base of Mount Kutha in Brisbane, and there were eastern water dragons all around the place. And I love those lizards. There's something kind of magnificent about them, Nick. The, they have this kind of statuesque, they're a bit like movie stars, like going down to the creek at the bottom of our house, you'd see like uh, an eastern water dragon sort of pose like a kind of a bodybuilder on a rock or something like that. You feel quite strongly about them too, don't you? I do. Look, we're talking about my favourite lizard in the world. There's so much about them that is fascinating. Your description there of a, a majestic male, and they have a very complex social life where males, big dominant males, as you described, they command a section of usually a river bank or a stream bank, but sometimes around a lake, and they have typically a harem of females, and they defend that territory. So the boys fight each other, and often you can see the scars on them from those battles. But they're an animal that when you interact with them, when you get into their space... If you watch them, you can tell that they are a really switched on beast. They that they will watch you. They will sometimes they'll sometimes do some of these elaborate behaviours where they bob their head up and down. Yeah, yeah. What's that about? So well, so they do that without any humans around. So that's some signalling within for their own species. But a number of lizards, dragons, and some skinks, when uh, there is a predator in the area, they will do that head bobbing. And for some other dragons, they will wave a falling. They literally wave their arm at you. The general interpretation is that it's a signal that they know you're there. They're telling you that they know you're there. They're potentially signalling to others of their own nearby that there is a danger in the area. But the thing with water dragons, a few years ago, their scientific name changed. The first part of that two-part scientific name is now Intelligamma. And so they're literally the intelligent dragon. And, and when you spend some time with them, you can see they're calculating, they're watching you, they're thinking things through. So it's, yeah. it's not just an instant reaction. They're genuinely thinking about it. They're fascinating lizards. I love them. Yeah, my kids used to try and creep up on them. And so going down the creek, seeing one sort of posing on a rock, they, they're able to like freeze utterly, totally motionless in a way that a mammal just can't ever be. You'd think that they were dead or something. And then there'd be this moment, they'd be watching the, my, my kids and then bang, they'd be off. And explosion like, of movement. Explosion yeah. of movement like Precisely. that. Precisely. Yeah. So one of the things about reptiles and other ectotherms, as we call them, cold-blooded in the old language, is that because they don't really generate their own metabolic heat, they are remarkably efficient. They don't need to eat 
anywhere near as much as a comparably sized bird and mammal. There's a whole lot of advantages to being energy efficient. You can switch off uh, literally months at a time over the colder months when it's hard to get warm and to move and to find food. But even when they are active, often they will be sitting, as you say, very, very still, and they don't move right up until when they really have to. In fact, a lot of the reptiles and frogs that we work on, often if they don't need to be exposed, if they don't need to be out and about to feed or to digest after a feed or to find a mate, then they often stay literally underground. One of the ones we studied was tiger snakes, where we had um, miniature radio transmitted inserted into their body cavity. And one of the most striking results of that that radio telemetry study is we, we tracked the movements of these snakes, was just how much they didn't move if they didn't need to. They would, for example, be sheltering down a rabbit burrow. And so they will stay there, even under weather conditions that I would consider to be absolutely perfect for a tiger snake. They didn't. They stayed down the burrow there. And in, in doing that, they avoid the risk of being exposed to predators like birds and that kind of thing. So it's a really efficient way to live. And it also means because they have those lower energy demands, they don't need to eat anywhere near as much. Right. Is it like the same principle that will allow a croc, for example, to look sluggish and motionless in the water and then when it's ready to strike, croc can like run like the devil all of a sudden? And and is that act of running suddenly like the eastern water dragon, does that really cost them then profoundly given that they don't want to do it very often? Yeah, it does in a sense. And so you're absolutely right that that when you look at a, at a resting crocodile or a resting water dragon, it's very, very easy and very, very common to underestimate their speed and power. Difference is one can run away from you, the other one might run towards you, though. <laughs> and that's exactly right, Richard, precisely. I remember when I was in primary school, I had, uh, I had a mate and I was very envious because he had a pet water dragon. It was the first I'd ever seen. I was blown away, uh, this lizard that was the best part of a metre long. But he had a big paddock next to his house and we used to take this water dragon out and then we'd have four or five of us kids around to make sure we didn't lose it and we just let it go for a run. And and two things that immediately struck me is that when they are warmed up, the the water dragons are capable of running on their hind limbs. and and What, upright, you mean? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. They can can lift those forelimbs off the ground when they're they're sprinting. But the other lesson I learned is that while they can do that explosive first burst, because they're ectotherms, they're they're sprinters and not marathon runners, so they'll often do a burst. Essentially, you can run one down if – it's out in the open and has nowhere to go. Now, water dragons will most often drop into the into the water uh, as their escape route, uh, and other lizards will head up trees or down burrows or whatever. But but if they don't have that option, they generally can't run very far and very fast. The kangaroos are the marathon runners. They can kind of keep that up, whereas you get a reptile, it's got that, that brilliant sprint speed. N- not all of them, of course, but, but some of them have that brilliant sprint speed. But then once they've done that two or three times – they've run out of steam and they can be much easier to run down and catch at that point. And Nick, you're doing research at the moment that suggests that it might just be possible that lizards could be helping plants to grow. And how do they do that? So this is Dr. Zach Atkins, who's a colleague that I work very closely with. And Zach, he's become the the leading expert on a lizard called a Guthiga skink. Now, the Guthiga skink occurs in only two areas in Australia. It occurs in Kosciuszko National Park and in Victoria, it occurs on the Bogong High Plains and nowhere else. Zach caught one that was not too far off the summit of Mount Kosciuszko. 
And normally when we study a lizard's diet or a reptile's diet, we, we collect their scats, but we usually do it for a very short period of time. But Zach did his analyses of their diet over the entire active season of the Guthiga skink. What he discovered is that from when they emerge from hibernation in spring, they are quite typical skinks eating invertebrates. They feed on ants and grasshoppers and, and anything kind of small enough for them to grab in their mouth. And their diet at that point is almost entirely insectivorous. But come February, there's a, a plant called the mountain beard heath. It lives around the burrows and it produces these berries that start off green and then ripen into a bright red berry. And at this time of year, the Guthicus skinks have an almost complete diet switch from eating invertebrates to eating these berries. They eat lots of them. And these berries have um, obviously have seeds in them. And we, we're, we're theorizing at the moment that it's quite plausible that the skinks' digestion of, of the fruit may be necessary or at least enhance germination rates of that threatened plant. Now, Guthica skinks are critically endangered uh, because they have a very restricted distribution. They're at the upper elevations. Their habitat is affected by by things like fire. Feral horses cause a lot of damage in Guthica skink habitat uh, and climate change and that kind of thing. So, so they are um, a legitimate threatened species that we could lose if we're not careful. And so Zach's work really speaks to that interrelatedness between species and the complexity in food webs. So you mean like you lose the skink, then you might lose the plant? That's right, Richard, yeah. And if you do lose the plant, maybe there's something else that relies on those berries as well that we don't yet know about, and you could lose that. Zach's been working around these Guthica skinks for, for 10, 15 years, but we're still learning more about them. And the more you learn, the more you discover this interrelatedness the, the consequences of losing a species is always more than losing a species. You mentioned there before about capturing lizards when you were a kid. Yeah. Where was this, Nick? Uh, so I grew out in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, the, the sort of what, what was then the far eastern suburbs, what now, um, you know, is not considered the far eastern suburbs. And and so my first exposure to to lizards was in the playground in my primary school. And because it was the outer burbs in those days, there were paddocks around it and there were thickets of blackberries and, and, and weeds and so on. There were a few houses that bordered the schoolyard. And through spring and summer, we would see these little skinks. And what happened to me happens to a lot of kids. You know, if you take a kid and you expose that kid to nature, the the curiosity is an immediate result of that that intersection between a young mind and nature. And and for me, it was those lizards. And again, it was something, you know, there were birds in the trees overhead, but I couldn't touch those. Whereas I could try and catch a lizard. They were fast. It required some skill to, to catch them, which was also, I'm sure, a draw card. You could hold them in your hand, couldn't you? That was the thing. You could. That, that's right. I have memories of doing that myself as well. And the, the other thing I remember about them, of course, is famously their, their tails detach. Yeah. And they keep wiggling after they've been detached. Is there some kind of an advantage that gives skinks that, that wiggling detachable tail? Oh, yes. I mean, it, it's not that it comes with no cost because it certainly comes with a cost. The, the tails regrow surprisingly quickly on things like those small skinks that drop them. And during our mark recapture work uh, up in the Alps, we, we, we see lizards that have dropped the tail or maybe they drop their tail while we are handling them. And over that active season, they regrow very, very quickly. So they are, to some degree, expendable. There are some skinks that, that when a predator approaches, they will begin to swirl their tail in order for the predator to be focused on that end of the lizard rather than the head end. Hopefully, the predator goes for the tail and then the lizard discards the tail and that's that. But 
with those alpine shirks, kinks I study in the Alps, they can and do discard their tails when they're stressed without me touching their tail at all. But it just drops the tail. It does. It, it, you can see it begin to swirl. It, it just busts off the tail. It literally casts it off with no physical intervention from me. And are you saying that like because it keeps wiggling? Is that like it becomes a kind of a fake decoy animal for the predator? Exactly what it is, Richard. That's correct. So this tail's wriggling around on the ground, and hopefully that's what the predator is then focused on, allowing the, the now tailless lizard or, or you know slightly tailless lizard now to make good its escape. And look, uh, uh, some work I did overseas, there was a gecko I encountered in Central Asia that... It was a very large gecko, and that when it discarded its tail, the, the the scale arrangement on the underside of the tail, as that tail wriggled, you know, independent of the lizard now, the tail wriggling in the sand, it was actually a really quite pronounced sound. There was this raspy sound that came with it. So, and, and I'm sure with Australian skinks, you know, when they, the, the smaller lizards, when they ditch their tail, if the tail is in, in amongst leaves and other things, it, it will have an audible component to the lure as well as a visual component. So you're this guy, you're a kid who's mucking around, uh, you're capturing lizards, you're fascinated by them, you're deadly envious if your mate who's captured a, what was it, a goanna, I think, or something like that? Oh, it's a Gippsland water dragon. A Gippsland water dragon, all that sort of thing. It seems like the next step is really obvious for you to then go to uni after that and study biology or zoology or or something like that. What happened as you got older? Yeah, it it didn't go that way. So I hit my middle and late teens. I, I just... I really like motorcycles and I and I saved, I worked at Kmart and saved up and bought my first mini bike and I started noticing girls a lot more. And so I never really contemplated the idea that I could make a career out of it. And, and I remember, in fact, this goes as far as I remember in year 10, um, we had to have a geography teacher, you know, he must've got another 20 bucks a week or something to be the careers advisor. And each of us had to go and see him for 20 minutes and talk about what we might want to do so he could help guide us with which subjects to select for year 11 and 12. And, you know, I had a bit going on in life and I was being, I wasn't behaving all that well um, for a variety of reasons, but I, I was being a bit smart and I, I said to him, you know, I want to, you know, what do you want to do for a job, Nick? Well, I want to catch blue tongue lizards. And he said, if you think anybody is going to pay you to catch lizards, you're dreaming, stop wasting my time, get out. Okay, fine. And then come year 11, I was still, I was still getting in a bit of trouble. You know, I'd been busted smoking behind the gym more often than you're meant to. And, um, and, and in the end, look, there were reasons behind that. Like there was, there was some things going on with my family and, um, I lost my brother, you know, I was 16, he was 18 and, uh, he and a friend, uh, died while on a, a cross-country skiing trip in the in the Victorian Alps. And I was going a bit off the rails. And so I um I wasn't focusing on academic matters very much. And the school the school decided to do me a favor. They said, look, you you you're doing more subjects for your HSC as it was then than you need to do. You can drop a subject. And I said, okay, cool. Um, I want to drop biology. And I said, oh, do you want to think about it? I said, no, no, I can't stand it. It's uh, it's really boring. I want to drop biology. And I did. And I switched to English literature from biology. Um, because in biology, you know, we were doing stuff that, that just didn't really speak to me. You know, we were looking at cell structure and a lot of that laboratory kind of biology. Right, instead of being out in the wilderness hands-on with animals, yeah. And, and at that point, I, at that point, I didn't really know. You could be out in the wilderness. I, I, I knew of zookeepers and, I, you know, I'd love going to Melbourne Zoo and Hillsville Sanctuary and, and you know, I, I would make a beeline for the reptile house. 
but that was it. You know, I didn't think of it in a career sense. And so when I finished my year 12, my, my neighbor had um, quite recently started a cabinet making business out of his shed. And so, and, and he would call on me um, frequently to help him load the trailer or help him install a kitchen, uh, lift something heavy, that kind of thing. And so when I, when I finished high school, he just said to me, look, I, I like what you've done so far. Do you want a job? And I said, sure. I, you know, I got nothing else in mind. So I did an apprenticeship with him as a cabinet maker. And then ultimately he amalgamated with a bit of a bigger company and we were doing industrial, we started off doing custom kitchens and that kind of thing. We were doing some industrial work and then late eighties, the recession hit and the businesses I was working for then shut down. And so I was briefly out of work and then the work I could get was in a factory in an industrial complex in the Eastern suburbs. And it was mass producing cheap pine furniture. And it was, it was just this repetitive. Depressing. Depressing. It really was. And it, you know, I didn't know it then, but I do now that, that part of why it was depressing for me was that my brain needed more and it wasn't getting that. And so I, I got really down about it and down about myself. And my, my girlfriend at the time said, well, why don't you change? And I'm going, well, you know, there's no jobs out there. It's a recession. I, I got to kind of keep bringing the money in. And she said, what about going to uni? And I said, no, 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 that, that's not for me. Why did you say that? Why do you think it wasn't for you? Because I was intimidated. I was a tradie. I didn't think I was that smart. When I thought of universities, I, I picture them as having the intellectual elite there and that I would literally make a fool of myself if I went there. But things got so bad for me in the factories, at least with my mental health, that I just thought, look, I, I need a circuit breaker. So I couldn't think of anything better. So I said, all right, I'm going to go and have a crack at university. And at that point, I was 24 years old, which um, qualified me then as a mature age student. And I had to fill out some paperwork and write down my 10 preferences. And my first couple of preferences, you know, I think my highest preference was journalism. I think third or maybe fourth on that list of 10 was environmental studies. And, and, and the reason I saw that, I saw it in the brochure and I just thought, you know, as a kid, I did love nature. I did love those, that wildlife. And I loved it. You know, the, the, the times when dad would take my brothers and I camping. And so I thought, all right, let's have a crack at that. And so that's where it all started. And I really did at the time, I, I thought this is going to be a six month break from the factories. I'll fail dismally and then I'll head back to the <laughs> factories. But, but I need this for my mental health now. And how did you feel walking on campus? Did you feel like some kind of an imposter or something? Look, I did. I mean, I was 24 and most of the other people in my course were 18, although there was the odd person who was older than me, of course. I felt exactly like an imposter because I was this blue collar tradie guy. And so I was definitely a bit of a square peg in a round hole. So what happened once you started this course in environmental science? Well, what I did was it was almost instinct for me to be up at the crack of dawn and be on site by 7am. That was the tradie, <laughs> the tradie routine. So I would turn up at university and it'd just be me and the security guards and no one else. And, and what I discovered is that I, I could make good use of that time. And I did. So if I had an essay to write or if I had uh, work to do, I would do that. And I'd often get most of the day's work in before 9, 10am when the others started rocking up. And, and it, you know, it, it paid off. For, I mean, one of the things I learned was that the material just fed my soul for starters. So I was, I was doing biology, psychology and earth science, which is essentially geology. And that, that subject in particular, all of a sudden the physical world around me, I started to be able to interpret it. You can read the world around you. Yeah. Yeah. I can understand why the hills are where they are and why they're shaped where they are and so on. So, so I found it fascinating and it, it just, it brought out this incredible hunger to want to know more about 
the, the land around us and about the species within that land. So you're this student who walks on campus feeling like an imposter. Nonetheless, you're there at the door at 7am, ready to start work. You're getting all your essays done on time. You've given yourself six months without much hope. What were your marks like at the end of your first semester then? That that routine, that being there at 7am, and also, you know, when we have the first lecture of, of a semester on a subject, the lecturer would say, all right, your mark will be determined by two essays and an exam and a practical or something. And they'd give us the essay topics and I'd start writing that night. And what that meant was that a fortnight before exams, I had nothing to do but prepare for exams. Whereas my, <laughs> the, the mates I was hanging out with, uh, the mates I was hanging out with, you know, they were all kind of panicking and trying to get stuff in. And, and by having that routine, by being there early in the day, it meant that I could still party with the guys later in the day because I'd done all my work. And so what I discovered at the end of that first semester, I did four subjects and, you know, I turn up on campus one day and the the, the results are posted up on the notice board and I wander over and have a look at what I'm doing. And, and for the four subjects, I had two distinctions, two high distinctions. There was this light bulb moment where I thought, you know what, I, at, at, at the very minimum, maybe things, maybe the course gets tougher from here on in, but at the very minimum, I think I can pass this and, and actually walk out of here in a few years with a degree. And that was the realisation, I'm, I'm not going back to the factories, guys. I'm staying here. I'm going to keep doing this. And I actually did okay at uni in terms of those academic results. Although I, did, I had... Um, one friend at uni and she was she was very, very academic. And I remember early in the second semester, she was refusing to speak to me and she was very angry with me. And in the end, she just said, look, you're a fraud. You're the, the class clown, which I had been in high school too. And you muck around and I know you're getting on the beers with the lads afterwards. You don't do that and get high distinction. So you, you must be cheating in some way. And I wasn't, I genuinely wasn't cheating. But I've realized that that, you know, if you have that that mixed persona of of, you know, you're a party guy too, but you can also uh, achieve really well academically. Um, you know, some people don't like that so much. They want you to be the other stereotype, you know. Broadcast. Podcast. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, Nick, you finish uni with flying colours against all expectations you had when you walked into uni. Tell me what happened when you got sent out into the field on your very first job. So I was, I was sort of headhunted by the Victorian government's Biodiversity Research Institute, the Arthur Island Institute, and I had a, a colleague working with me and I was tasked with heading out to central Gippsland and uh, doing surveys for reptiles and frogs. And that work involved finding a, a pre-selected site in forests. And so we'd, we'd be following a map and then we'd see the pink flag tape and know that that was our site. My colleague stayed pretty close to the four-wheel drive and just sort of poked around there recording whatever was there. My job was to spend 45 minutes uh, moving through the forest and essentially looking for any active reptiles or frogs, so basking lizards or snakes, uh, anything on the move, but also to look under rocks, under logs and that kind of thing. And so very early in my time with the Institute, I was out doing that in Gippsland and it was a it was a very, very muggy, warm day. It was at least mid-30s, and 
there were some quite severe bushfires burning just to the north of where we were. And I was really conscious of that and conscious that all the emergency services were doing that. So off I go and I'm, I'm sort of moving through the forest and I've got, I've got a big geologist pick or hammer with me that I'm using to, to search in and under various materials. And I'm watching my stopwatch on my wristwatch and eventually I've, I've clocked up my 45 minutes. And so I stand upright and, as I stood upright, I kind of looked around and I thought, oh, I'm not 100% sure where I am here. And I started to head back in the direction I thought I needed to go and then realised, no, no, this doesn't look familiar. And then I saw a, cre- a dry creek line. It was completely dry. And I thought, I'm, I think I think I saw one of those near the car. Started following that, no go. So at that point, I'm thinking, I am, I'm as lost as I've ever been. I'm completely lost here. And I've got a bushfire just north of me. I'm extremely dehydrated. It's, it's you know, the high 30s and I've been working hard for nearly an hour. You say there's a bushfire nearby. Could you see the smoke from it? Yeah, absolutely. We could. We could see the smoke driving in in the fall drive. And more importantly, I could smell it from where I was. And so when I realised I was lost, I thought, all right, well, don't panic, you know, try and think, do all the right things that, that we're supposed to do. And eventually I started calling out to my colleague in the hope that she would hear me and maybe toot the car horn and give me a, a bit of a direction to go. And so I started yelling a little bit and then I started yelling a lot <laughs> and I could hear nothing. There was, there was quite a bit of wind, I could hear nothing. And so I thought, well, okay, I'm legitimately lost and it's not a good thing, it's not the right day for it. I knew that the forest block didn't last forever. There, It was surrounded by roads eventually. So I picked a direction um, using w- what sun I could see through the smoke haze and just tried to keep a, a bearing. I didn't have a compass on me or a GPS or anything like that, but tried to hold a bearing. So and you're holding a consistent direction and that's, your, that's the only strategy you had left to get out of this, this forest? That's it. And eventually after um, some hours of walking and getting increasingly dehydrated, which, you know, is not a good thing, obviously, I thought thought I heard a vehicle in the distance. So I, I, you know, I adjusted my course slightly and made a beeline for that. And, and eventually not only did I break out of the forest block, but it was onto a pretty major highway. And so I started, you know, trying to flag down cars. I was waving my arms and the first two. Yeah, but, what, but what are you looking like while you're doing this at the time? A bit bedraggled, I'm sure. Not only bedraggled, but I was holding this big rock pick and I'm waving <laughs> it in the air. And then I thought, oh, hang on, hang on. I know why they're not stopping. So I, I subtly, you know, put the rock pick on the ground and the next car I, I flagged down actually stopped. And he, he, when he got me into town, into the, the, the town we were staying in, it's a, it's a one cop town and it was after hours and so he took me to the police station the, the the station was shut but the cop lived next door in the house and I knocked on his door and you know he sort of opened his door and I told him who I was he goes oh you're that bloke I've been listening to this on the radio I'm going oh no like you know so obviously a big fuss had been caused and sure enough the trial bike squad and various police were out uh, searching for me and the the mortification was <laughs> was kind of amplified by the bushfire so I thought not only have I not only have I done something dumb and not only have I caused people to have to come and, and look for me, but I've probably pulled emergency service workers away from a pretty important bushfire just north of me. So, yes, it was um, it was pretty humiliating and it uh, was a very, very good lesson. Not only a good lesson in making sure I didn't ever repeat that, but also, you know, as my career developed and I was supervising students and taking younger stuff into the field, making sure that they understood what was important as well for their own safety. We all know that Australians are total bastards when it comes to this sort of thing. Nick, do they ever let uh, you, your colleagues ever let you forget you no, got look, lost on day one? Look, for, it's long and long ago enough now that, you know, <laughs> uh, oh, up until our little conversation here, Richard, most people don't remember. But but certainly in the 
in the weeks afterwards when I would be in the office at the Institute and, and me and a couple of friends would wander down the street for a coffee or some lunch at the cafe and, and as we'd start walking, one of them would always say, hey, Nick, maybe you stay at the back and let us show you the way to the cafe. So <laughs> I, I copped it good and, and, and as I should, I'm sure, because I would have done something just the same, I reckon. Well, the wonderful thing about this world you're in suddenly, you're not only sort of being able to read the land around you, you're sort of being taken out into the big white world. Tell me how it was in 2003 you were invited into the deserts of Uzbekistan in Central Asia, the Silk Road territory of Central Asia. Yes. So at the time I was working in the deserts of northwestern Victoria up at Hattar National Park where I was doing some trapping and a fresh colleague, a new colleague had moved to Melbourne. Jane Melville is the curator of reptiles and frogs at Museum's Victoria Research Institute. And Jane happened to be working with an American guy, Jim Schilty, who was a, a very accomplished lizard guy from the US. And they were, Jane had this money to work internationally on desert lizards. And so our paths literally crossed up there in the desert. So when I was finished trapping for the day, I'd go out with Jane and Jim and help them catch lizards. And early in the mornings, they'd come with me and check my pitfall traps. And so I must have, despite being lost earlier, I must have been competent enough for Jane to say, all right, look, I'd like to invite you. I have this grant money and I'm working in deserts around the world and I need a field assistant. And, you know, you seem competent. You can change a tyre and you can get a four-wheel drive through sand dunes and whatnot. Would you like to come, all expenses paid, on a, an international research trip to Uzbekistan? And I said, hell yeah, I will. Um, and then I raced home and pulled out my atlas and tried to figure <laughs> out where is Beckstar. I had no idea, like literally no idea. And so we rapidly prepared and I got my shots and did all the things you've got to do, vaccines and whatnot, before heading over. And then Jane and I flew out and we land in Tashkent, the capital of Uzbekistan, one of the former Soviet republics, you know, on the Silk Road. And as well as some local Uzbeks who were kind of our drivers, cooks, fixers, essentially, we're also working with a couple of Russian scientists, um, including the great and powerful Natalia Ananyeva, who is uh, this amazing woman who is, at that time, was vice president of the Russian Academy of Sciences and, and just a powerhouse of a scientist. And, and so we ended up with uh, two vehicles, was our little convoy, and we headed out into, you know, literally the middle of nowhere and with very unreliable vehicles. And so this is complete culture shock for me. I'd been overseas once to the US, but that was it. I'd not travelled much. And so here I was in a part of the world that I knew nothing about, uh, a culture that I knew nothing about, and, and these amazing landscapes and history. The, the local people were unbelievably hospitable. They would go hungry for a week to ensure that you're well fed if you're a guest in their home. So there was a real humbling exposure to the, that kind of culture. And then we moved out into the desert, miles from anywhere. Each night we would pull the vehicles up and we'd each pitch a tent and camp in our tent and light a fire. And we we're living off canned food mostly. And occasionally when we travel through a little village, we'd, we'd resupply. So they have um, these cowboys. They're more than just cowboys because they, they often have mixed species herds of stock. So often it would be goats, sheep, horses and cows all mixed into the one flock or herd or whatever you want to call it in front of you. And the, the cowboys were very much, you know, practicing a lifestyle that, that they'd been doing for... Thousands for, of years. For Thousands millennia. Years, yeah. For millennia, yeah. absolutely. And there we were. And it was, it was an interesting time because 2003 is only two years after the 9-11 attacks on New York City. And Afghanistan was the target 
of the US at that point. It's just across the border there too, isn't it? Uzbekistan shares a border, a small border. It's only 100, 150 kilometres or so, but they share a border with Afghanistan. And the United States had established an Air Force base along that border, just on the Uzbek side of that border. That's Maza e Sharif along there, wasn't it? Yeah, it's exactly, Richard. It's that part of the world. And so, so I had this, um, this kind of surreal experience where some of the work I was in, the, the, they used the terminology semi-desert versus desert. So we worked in both. So, so we worked in desert, which is the, you know, the stereotypical sand dune kind of country that you think of deserts being. And then the, the semi-deserts is in this Asian steppe country where it's just very, very flat, but it's surprisingly green. You know, underfoot, there's a lot of plant material and it's very, very flat right up until it's not very, very flat. So, so often it was these steps of very flat country that then immediately launch into pretty impressive mountains. And of course the Himalayas are not far from there. So they've got some amazing mountains, but you're moving through these landscapes, these, you know, sand dunes, for example, and then you crest a dune and I would hear this roar and it would build and it would build and it finally, it would get deafening. Then all of a sudden an American jet fighter would come overhead it felt like not much higher than the sand dune itself and and the back pressure would almost bowl you off your feet and this was a you know this was a fighter plane off to off to do its thing in afghanistan you couldn't get a more surreal experience you know a, a tradie from the eastern burbs of melbourne all of a sudden is standing in a in a desert in central asia in a former soviet republic with these ancient cowboy culture happening in front of me trying to find lizards and catch them with a noose pole and at the same time you know the highest technology the us military has is is blasting overhead you're a very long way from working in a pine factory does did you kind of marvel at times at how far life and how far your work had taken you out of that place look I don't think I did so much at the time. I do now. I, I mean, I guess I've been doing it long enough now that I, I, I do tend to reflect a little bit on that stuff. And look, I feel just enormous gratitude that my life took the turn it did and that I've had these opportunities and, you know, worked with some of the most amazing species in some of the most amazing places with some of the, the truly best humans you could meet. But, you know, the, the other sense that I have most of the time I was Einstein or someone said the, you know, the, the, this phrase that really sings to me, you know, those who have the privilege to know have the duty to act. And this is how I feel about the threatened species we work on. We, we know them better than anybody. We understand them and we understand the pressures on them. And so I feel very much duty bound to, to try and make sure that whoever is making decisions that affect these species is making them informed by the best available information. Because a lot of the time they're getting their information from, from vested interests. And, you know, the decision makers then make their decision. I don't control that side of things, but I want to make sure that they're doing it with eyes wide open as much as I can. You said in Uzbekistan, you're out in the deserts catching lizards with a noose. How on earth do you do that? The idea is for, for the kind of lizards we were working on in the desert, we had what is essentially a collapsible, like a telescoping fishing rod, but it doesn't have the normal ring, certainly doesn't have a reel or line or anything on it. It doesn't have the normal rings except for the terminal tip of the of the rod has a little fishing line like loop on it, a little metal loop. So um, yeah, these poles extend out to, you know, three, four metres depending on the model you've got. And what we would do is we would tie a length of dental floss to that terminal tip of the noose pole, tied a, a particular kind of slip noose in that dental floss. 
And then you collapse the noose pole down and you walk around. And when you when you spot a lizard that you want to catch, you extend your your noose pole out. And there's a there's a really interesting thing that happens with lizards. If you approach them, if you physically walk up to them, they will run. They they will bolt. But if you extend a, a a pole towards them, they will usually not always, but most of the time, they will allow it. And not only will they allow, but sometimes when you're trying to slip that noose over the lizard's head, it's dangling in front of them. Oftentimes they'll kind of leap up and try and bite the noose. I don't know if they think it's a, a moth or something, but they'll have a crack at it. So, so the idea is, is you slip the noose just over the lizard's head and either with a little flick of the wrist or the lizard will then try to run because it senses it's being touched, they will basically ensnare themselves in this in this noose. And the the noose is tied in such a way that the lizard's only held by its own body weight. So it's not choking them or suffocating them or whatever, but you've secured the lizard and then you simply, you know, collapse your pole again, move up and pick the lizard up and, you know, take the noose from around its around its neck and off you go. Lizard fishing in the desert sands of Uzbekistan. Lizard fishing. That sounds fantastic. So what would you do with these lizards once you'd caught them on your fishing rod? So the work we were doing out there, this was Jane's project, as I said, and so she had this grant where she was looking at the evolution of desert lizards and in particular the evolution relationship between their body proportions and their sprint speed. So what we would do for this particular project is once we'd caught a lizard, we would we would make sure the lizard was warmed up sufficiently so that because a cold lizard is a slow lizard, so we wanted to have them at you know, operating temperature for want of a better term. And what we would do is we would draw a line in the sand, either with my finger or a stick, I would draw a line in the sand and then I would hold the lizard at that, what, what was effectively the starting line. And Jane would stand three or four metres away with a camcorder, with a video recorder, and at her signal, I would release the lizard and it would then sprint off. It would it would take off. And that first burst of sprint it did, I would watch that lizard for where it stopped and I'd mark <laughs> a second line in the sand and we'd run a tape measure over the total distance. So we had a known distance for a known species and Jane had software that using the video footage she'd just taken, she could calculate the sprint speed and then she'd use some some statistical methods to relate limb proportions and body proportions to that sprint speed. And we'd also take a tissue sample from the lizard for genetic analysis. So combining all of that, Jane was able to do her, her pretty cool studies on, on, you know, how lizards have evolved with different sprint speeds depending on their ecological niche in these deserts. Does that sort of trick work on bigger lizards like a goanna or something like that? Oh, yeah. Uh, all you've got to do is scale up your noose pole. So it's a pole you can buy from fishing shops called a squid jigging pole, and that that's just like a fishing rod on steroids. It extends out to six metres long. And on that, instead of using dental floss, I would then use something like, you know, something the gauge of a, of a boot lace for water dragons. And your same principle, you know, you slip it over their neck and you capture them that way. The only difference is, you know, the water dragons are a bit more of a handful than the smaller lizards. And so you usually end up with bleeding arms from their claws and scratching. And then the, the daddy of them all, um, I ha- I've got a metal noose pole that extends out. So after the black summer bushfires, I was tasked with uh, assessing the status of a bunch of reptiles in Far East Gippsland. One of the species that we worried might have been grossly affected in those fires, well, it's lace monitors and the, the, the biggest lizard in Victoria, you know, big goannas, big powerful animals. And we were a bit worried because they, they, they rely on trees and hollows and they, they only lay their eggs in termite mounds. So they've got this very, very specific breeding bit biology as well. And aren't they fierce as well? Nick? Oh, yeah, yeah. They're a handful, right? So, and the other, not just fierce, but also venomous, which many people don't know. 
goannas actually have venom glands in their mouths. So that's a, an additional risk factor. So we extend the, you know, you've got this noose pollen. And, and what normally happens when you meet one of these uh, lace monitors is they'll they'll usually disappear up a tree, but but they don't usually go the whole way up the tree immediately. They often run and they stop at about head height on the tree trunk to wait to see what you're going to do. And if you can stalk to within about six metres of this goanna on the tree trunk, you can extend out your six metre noose pole, slip a rope over the goanna's neck, and then you've got to grab it and wrestle it and, and do what you've got to do. Grab it and wrestle it? Aren't they furious after you've done this? They are They are beyond furious. So they're a, they're a big, strong animal. And the two, there were actually three things you've got to watch for. The bite is pretty obvious. They have. I've got a. I've got about a three-inch scar on my right hand from a lace monitor claw. A big, big female that that while I was trying to get the noose off her, around her head, she whipped up her her forelimb and and opened me like a scalpel. Like it was amazing just how quickly and cleanly she cut me. But the other thing you got to watch for is their tail because they will literally whip you with their tail if you're if you're too close and you're handling them. So again, I'm working with my colleague, Zach Atkins, and we are, we're a tag team here, noosing the goannas. And then I would pin the goanna down on the ground. I'd be holding it, you know, mostly neck and, and, and using my knees to pin it down. And Zach would be there, you know, with a swab, swabbing inside the goanna's mouth to get swabs for genetic analyses. That was a kind of our double act. And I, yeah, I got, I got slashed up pretty well by a big girl um, in a – and it was in a thunderstorm on a pretty remote beach on Malakuta Inlet. So it was an interesting time, you know, trying to not get infected in a very muddy, stormy conditions before I could get back to our accommodation. We had an interesting incident there where we'd – we were working – we are in a very burnt area, you know, it had been scorched pretty bad, and we spot a big goanna. Interesting goanna in that it was missing two thirds of its tail, and unlike those skinks, the goannas don't routinely discard tails. So we found this one and we got it. It was on a tree trunk. We noosed it as we do, and we and we decided. Zach and I decided. Look, you know, rather than one of us going back to the car and getting the gear to swab the mouth and so on, we'll just carry the lizard to the car instead. So I'm holding the neck, and Zach's kind of holding the base of the tail. We're having to coordinate our steps to to walk out of the forest. And the, the second we emerge from the tree line onto the track, this four-wheel drive is going past. And as it passed us, I realised it was a police four-wheel drive. <laughs> and, of course, I see the brake lights come on and we're standing there. I don't know what they were thinking, but here are these two guys covered in charcoal from the burnt landscape holding on to this monster lizard. You know, one's got the head, one's got the tail end. And <laughs> so you see the reverse lights come on, the cops come back and, you know, like, what the hell are you What the hell are you doing? Right. And they were great. Like, the cops were fabulous. They, they you know, they said, all right, we're going to help you. So they parked their car. And, and so as I p- pinned it down, they were handing Zach. Uh, swabs to Zach the mouth, and so that, they were terrific about it. But yeah, we we must have looked like a couple of real weirdos at that point. I think Nick, you've also done some work into frogs, threatened frog species. Tell me about the most elusive frog that you've ever had to find in Australia. Sure, I, I recently uh, published a book on the frogs of Victoria, and of the thirty-eight or so frog species in Victoria, fifty percent of those are on a threatened species list. Literally half of our Victoria's frogs are on the threatened species list. And that should be that should ring alarm bells. It certainly does for me, and 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 it should for everyone. But look, one of those threatened species is a frog called the southern giant burrowing frog, uh, and it's a great name because it is 
uh, giant and it does burrow. And it occurs only in forested habitats. When you say giant, are we talking like as big as a cane toad, that kind of size? Uh, almost. So probably not quite as big as a cane toad, but, you know, the size of an adult male's fist uh, would be would be a good-sized female. The males are slightly smaller, um, but they're, they're a big frog. But despite being a big frog, they are easily the hardest frog that to find than I've ever encountered. So these are a frog that spends the vast majority of their time buried underground. 97% of their time in one study in New South Wales dispersed out through the forest, buried underground, and where they're basically undetectable. But they do move to, to breeding sites and they breed in very, very small streams in the forest. And often these streams aren't even flowing. They're, they're just a series of pools. The males move to those streams when they want to breed and they've got a very soft call. It's a call that's been described as owl-like. So they sound a little bit like a, the hooting of an owl. It's literally, you know, trying to attract females. They only appear when you've had a, a quite specific uh, set of weather variables that have, have aligned. So you need quite high temperatures and you need wet weather and so the ideal scenario is in spring or summer, warm day with an evening thunderstorm with lots of rain. That's your, that's your ideal conditions. But even if you get those ideal conditions, there's no guarantee whatsoever that you will f see one active. And in fact, you're far more likely to not find one than you are to find them. So you're looking for a needle in a haystack. You really are, yeah. And, and what a strange life they lead as well, where most of it is spent, what, inert, I suppose, inert, waiting for those rare moments when they can come out and feed and mate, I suppose. That's correct, Richard. So a bit like the the tiger snakes we radio tracked who, who stay down the rabbit burrow because why expose yourself to a predator if you're not hungry or, or chasing a mate? Ditto with these giant burrowing frogs, you know, they, they're not going to sit out and be picked off by a bird or a fox or something if they don't have to. So it's only when they're hungry. But even now, we've got some amazing insights from the field. We now know that they lay their eggs in burrows, you know, they, they burrow into the stream bank and that's where the males call from. And when the female arrives, that's where the eggs are laid. But we, we now are pretty certain they're also feeding there. So there's lots of bugs and various invertebrates moving along those stream banks. And and if the bug is unlucky enough to wander into that, that you know, convenient looking burrow right there, they will get nailed very, very quickly by these frogs. Nick, you used to think that being a scientist wasn't for the likes of a tradie like you. Now that you know what a scientist is, what do you think a scientist really needs? The only thing a scientist needs, some of the best scientists I know are barely toddlers. Curiosity is all you need, right? It's, it's just wanting to know why. That will drive you to scientific investigations. And so curiosity is the only thing you need. And anyone can be a scientist if they have that curiosity and they're willing to learn. Nick, it's been really amazing speaking with you. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's a, it's a real privilege to speak to you, Richard. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. Hi, 
I'm Beverly Wang, the host of Stop Everything, the show that makes you smarter about pop culture. Every week, I sit down with a guest critic, and together we sort through all the hot takes flying through the pop culture universe. We help you decide what to watch or skip, and whether that long read your bestie dropped in the group chat is really worth your time. Stop Everything, it's the show that makes you smarter about pop culture. Follow us now on the ABC Listen app.